0: Church, uh, welcome this morning on this Father's Day. Uh, so glad to see you and to worship together. I'm Harold Kim, one of the pastors here. And we're just going to get right into the scripture reading. If you brought your Bible, it will also be projected overhead. Let's turn to the book of Second Samuel, chapter 7. I'm going to read verses 12 through 17. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 17. This is God's word. I'll read it for us. This is God who made a covenant with King David, the second king of Israel. We'll just pick up at verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. This is God's word. The late Christian author uh, who wrote The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's been made into a lot of classic films now. He once wrote, in Christianity, the relation of a father and son is prior to and more central to all other relations. C.S. Lewis made quite a sweeping, grand observation about this Christian faith. Quote, once again, the relation of a father and son is prior to and more central to all other relations. How can this be the case? Well, if you eavesdrop into the private conversation or prayer life of Jesus' son, And God the Father, in John chapter 17, verse 24, when Jesus was at his most stressed, fearful, loneliest moment, here's what he prayed. Father, you loved me before the creation of the world. Jesus the Son prayed at his most fearful, stressed out moment. Father, you loved me before the creation of the world. You see, Jesus the Son constantly leaned back on, looked to relied upon his relationship with his father in heaven. You could very well say, the relationship Jesus had with his father in heaven shaped him the most. The relationship that Jesus had with God the Father was prior to and more central than every other relationship. And then you can go on and very well say, so at the heart of Christianity is that Father God to Jesus wants to become Father God to you. At the heart, the goal of Christian religion and faith is that God who is Father to Jesus wants to become a Father to you. Isn't this why Jesus taught us to pray? One of the most intimate, life-changing Entry points to know God. He said, if you want to learn how to pray, start with this. This is how you should address God. Our Father who art in heaven. That was utterly startling in Jesus' day. No one dared to call God to be be so personal and accessible and approachable and intimate. But Jesus prayed, our Father. Let's all call him our Father. Jesus is saying, I came to make my Father yours. So Jesus himself always prayed, Father, Father. Father, go check it out. But there's this one time that Jesus, instead of saying, Father, he says, God. One time. One and only time. And it was while Jesus was getting condemned for our sins. It's while Jesus was getting crucified on the cross. You see, Jesus came to take away our separation from God the Father Jesus came to die for our sins, so that we could be saved and adopted as sons and daughters. When Jesus was going through that moment to take your place, to give you his father, he was losing his father, and so he didn't say father, he said, God, God. God, why have you forsaken me? At the heart of Christianity is a son who gave up his father, lost his father, And a father who gave up his son so he can have you. You know, every Father's Day, just like Mother's Day, I know we carry so many different feelings and experiences. I grew up with a pretty darn good, affectionate, humble, faithful dad. I think he was among the finest of men. But do you know that the problem with people who've had good, faithful fathers is that you might never need a better one. You might really never need a better one. When Jesus says, our father in heaven, you're like, what? I don't need another father. Other people who have had awful, cold, disappointing, abusive. Your father never shed a tear. You know what the problem with that is? The problem is you can never believe there's a much better one. So whether you've had good fathers, you may not need a much better one. Whether you've had awful bad fathers, you may never believe there's a better one. I wanna tell you this morning, at the heart of Christian faith and what Jesus came to do. He says, I wanna bring you my father. I want him to become yours. Now let me set up a context right here. God is saying, David and your sons, I'm gonna be your forever father. And David is the second king of Israel They're enjoying peace and prosperity on an unprecedented level. David has defeated Goliath. He's reigning supreme and proud. And so he goes ahead and builds himself a palace. And this palace, by all accounts, was the most ornate, elaborate, with the finest architects and jewels. He spared no resource. He built himself a palace made of cedar wood. And so like any other sensible, sane Christian out there, after you build yourself a house like that, he's a little bit provoked and troubled. Oh, I should build a house for God too. And so he thinks about, God, I'm going to build you a house, a temple. And then God comes to him in this covenant, a binding intimate relationship, and he startles David at least on three levels because he promises to be a father like no other. As soon as David says, I want to build you a house, God comes back and at least on three levels, God startles him and all of us by saying he's going to be a father like no other. Here's the first way that he surprised King David. King David, don't build me a house. Don't build me a house. I don't need a house. You don't have to house the presence of God. Why? (laughs) God is making the point, David, but I've always moved around with you. I've actually always lived with you. God actually says, I'm happy as a father to live with you. Don't make me a separate house. When you're in a tent, when you're in the wilderness, when you're in a tabernacle, everywhere you went, I was always with you. Because it's actually the heart and the pleasure of a father to see what his children see, to feel what his children feel, to experience what their children experience. God wants to be united with his people so close, not far away. This living God, the father of Jesus, wants to be so close to you, not far away, that he feels what you feel. He says, my life is your life. My destiny is your destiny. Whether high or low, happy or sad, successful or failing, I will live and be with you. This is a startling revelation because no other king or God ever spoke this way. Now, you know, all the classic ancient depictions of father figures, all classic father figures are what? Strong, of course, We sang about the lion and as well as God is a lamb. All father figures are strong, but do you know when God came down to show what kind of father he is? He wasn't just supremely strong. He became so sweet, so meek, so approachable. All father figures, even according to the Bible, biblical masculinity means, what does it it mean to be made in the image of God, both male and female, equally in the image of God, but what does it mean to be male? Why do we call God the father, not God the mother? What does it mean to be biblically masculine? Well, the scriptures and even common culture will tell us, well, men are supposed to lead, men are supposed to protect, men are supposed to provide, men are supposed to defend, now, if you have any issues with that, that males are completely equal with females, but there might be different roles. I really don't know anyone who would dispute if an intruder came into your home, a violent, crazed, or armed intruder, who here would say women and children should defend first? If your ship is sinking, who should first get into the life, the, the rescue boats? Men are called by the image of God To love, lead, defend, protect, and provide. But do you know how God came to show it in superlative ways? He did it to the point of his own death. Men are called to be strong, but God is so sweet. Men are called to lead, but he leads by giving himself. Self-sacrificial love. Do you know in Hebrews, it's also called father's Fathers, if you are a father now, you are actually called to discipline your children, discipline, discipline. But when God comes down and shows us how he disciplines his children, here's what he does. Every time he disciplines his children, he never overdoes it. He never provokes and exasperates his children. He never does it because he had a bad moody day. God disciplines with perfect measure of truth and grace, love and wisdom, and he doesn't he's not vindictive. He doesn't have some personal sin issue that he needs to clear. This God That made a covenant with David says, I want to make myself personally, intimately, vulnerably, approachably involved. I will always live and be with my people. That's how he wants to be with you. You know, back in 1999 or 2000, I spent nine months at an evangelical seminary teaching languages that I no longer know how to read or use. I gotta confess that as a pastor. I spent nine months in Osia, Croatia, that's former Yugoslavia. I went the year after, it was war-torn, divided into three countries. And I remember a group of Christians that had come by in the winter, all the way from Times Square, it's actually called Times Square Church, right there in New York. And they said, how are we gonna best minister to and love the Muslim refugees in Bosnia? Bosnia. Well, here's what I saw them do, I was just startled. They decided, well, we're not gonna just give them warmth, blankets, food, shoes. We're not gonna just bring more tents. A group of Christians decided through the winter that they would go move in and live with the refugees. That they would actually sleep and live and eat what they ate through the winter, a brutal winter in Bosnia. And is it no wonder that at the end of that winter, that several former Muslim people were converted to the Christian faith because down to the last man, woman, or children, they said, we've never seen something like this in our religion. Where God would come down and be so close to you that he moves in and lives with you. There's a second way that God promises to David and to all his sons. I'm going to be a father like no other. Here's a second way. When it comes to grace, God promises to outdo everybody. God the Father promises to outdo everyone when it comes to grace. If you read from verses 8 on, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture. Then in verse nine, I have been with you. Then in verse nine, I will make. Then verse 10, I will appoint. Then in verse 11, I will give. Then in verse 12, I will raise. I will establish. Then we read in our verses, I will will build. I will build. Everything is I. Everything is a personal pronoun. So he basically retells David's story. You know, David, basically the entirety of your success and happiness and health, you've risen to the throne because it's all been upon me. I did that, I did this, I did did that, I took you here. Now, from a human perspective, you might think if you know your scriptures, he said, but what are you talking about? David did a lot. David was that small little boy who put on armor that was too big for him, it was too heavy, and he went out and defeated Goliath. What a brave, valiant child. What are you talking about? David did nothing. Again, according to God's retelling of David's life and story, God is saying, yeah, you did do that, but it really wasn't much, I really did it all. All of it was on me, it's by grace. My daughter turned 14, my younger one is 12. We're trying to teach them this difficult principle called tithing, tithing, giving 10% of any of the money that we get. And my daughters don't like it, I can be honest with you. It's a difficult lesson. But do you know how silly it is that they refuse or are having a difficult time to give 10% back to God? It's from their allowance. They have no jobs. They can't drive. They don't work anywhere. They're having a difficult time giving 10% to church from the free money they get from their parents. And here's what God is telling King David and all of us. All that I am calling you to give, even a little, it's already been all given. David, you really did defeat Goliath. Good for you. But who do you think ultimately did that? God is saying, when it comes to grace, I will outperform, outmaneuver, outlast, I'll run circles around everyone else. It is remarkable that God refused a house built for him. Archaeology and historical records will tell us that anytime time a king was triumphant, he or she would build a temple, a house, or a monument back to God. And here was the principle. As long as you do something good for your God, then your God has to come back and do something good for you. That's the working principle. If you won in war, if you became rich, if you defeated an arch enemy, as long as you continue to build tributes and honor and a house for God, as long as you scratch his back, God will come back, your God will come back and bless and continue his favor upon you. But when we get to the God of David, here's what God says, no house. No monument, no memorial. Because the God of David is signaling, I don't work this way. In fact, God is saying, I cannot work this way. I want you to get this, my friends, because God's glory is best received. You best experience God's glory when you find his grace. Ephesians chapter one, verses six and seven calls us to glorify God. Oh, what is that? How do you glorify God? It's because you have received his lavish grace. Just read four more chapters. Go home, please read the scriptures. 2 Samuel 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. Here's what happens to this King David. He sees a woman bathing nude. He doesn't go out to war. The man is filled with lust. And he goes and he sleeps with her. Then to cover up his crime and his sin, he takes her husband, puts him in the front line of battle where it was certain that he was going to die. So King David slept with another man's wife, then he manipulated a situation in which that, that wife's husband was, he was murdered. Really, he was murdered, he was killed in war. And the Bible goes on to say, this is a man after God's own heart. And the Bible goes on to say that God continued to be faithful and blessed him and still continue to love on him. Why would that be the case? There's no other reason that could be the case unless God is a God of grace. He will outdo everyone when it comes to grace. I think in one of the most famous stories that Jesus ever told, it's famous because it is so accurate and moving. Jesus came and told us a story and said, this is what my father is like. I have a father in heaven and this is what he's like. There was a father who had two sons and the younger son came up to the old man. And he basically told him, I wish you would die. I'd like to collect on the life insurance right now. That's really what he said in ancient times. To be more technical, it's not just your life insurance. I want the property value. I want the price of your estate. And this father bent over backwards, actually divided up the price, the value of his palace or his mansion and house, and gave it to his younger son. Jesus goes on to say, the younger son took that money after that insulting remark, after that resentment, after that rebellion, and it says he went far, far, far away, far away. He wanted nothing to do with his dad, although his dad seemed to be the best among men. And in this faraway country, he took that money, and then later on we find he spent it. Oh, he spent it well. He partied hard. You know, there are a lot of people in K-Town who'll be your friends because you paid. There are a lot of people who show up at that bar because you're there and you pay. He had that life. He was a prodigal. He spent it on prostitutes, we find out later. But then you run out of money and then you, so you figure out oh, you run out of all your friends. He's dirt poor. He's eating the food that pigs ate, which was anathema to the Jewish culture. And then he comes groveling back home. He's done nothing right, he's totally unworthy. He's proven nothing good and he comes crawling back home and then Jesus paints a picture and says that father has been waiting for his son to return. That father has been wanting and longing for the return of his son and when the son does come back the father welcomes him embraces him lavishes him with kisses from head to toe. The reason why Jesus told that most famous story or a picture of what his God is like is because all of us here could not imagine any father could be like that. But the father to Jesus will outdo everyone when it comes to grace. Can I ask you this question? Is your father anything like the father of Jesus? Who is your daddy? Really, who is your daddy like? What is your daddy like? And when I ask you that question, I want you to really think with me. I don't want you to think about your human dad. When I asked you, who's your father, what's your daddy like? I'm not asking about your human father. There's no human father who'll ever measure up. What I'm asking is, is God like that to you? And here's the test, whether you have religion or a father. My friends, this morning, here's a test, whether you might be a Christian or just religious. What do you do after you radically sin? What do you do after you repeatedly sin? What do you do when you are wholly unworthy? What do you do when you've done nothing right? What do you do when you deserve all the shame, humiliation, and financial debts and ruin? I want to tell you, my friend, what you do at that moment shows what kind of daddy you have. Do you have a father in heaven who's moving away from you in disgust and disappointment? Who's always saying, How dare you? I can't believe you did that again. Or do you actually have a father figure who leans in? He actually moves closer to you, especially in your sin. Jesus came so that you and I can have a father in heaven who outdoes everyone when it comes to grace. And you can tell that case to be true, especially after you fail. For those of you this morning, for many, many moons, many seasons right now, you have felt very, very far from God. I've been there. This is ritual. This is cold. This is, you're just barely getting here. There's really no, there's no contact from this thing out there. Can I suggest to you, do you know why you feel so far away? God hasn't moved far away. It's called religion. Religion always drives you away because there's no grace. But grace will always let you fall forward into a father's arms. God the father to David and all his sons He lives with you, wants to be that close to you, doesn't want to be stoic or unfeeling, but feel what you feel. He wants to be united to his people. Second, God the Father to David and his sons, he he outdoes everyone when it comes to grace. Here's the third, and we close. God says crazy things in verses 13 and 16, did he not? Build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. For how long? Forever. Verse 16, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure for how long? Forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever, forever. So this father, the God to Jesus, says I will forever be faithful. I will forever be true. I will forever always be there. And if you have a hard time believing that like I do, Psalm 89 picks up on this precise language right here on the Davidic covenant and it actually just says the same things that we just read in our verse, in several verses. But then it picks up in an interesting, surprising way at the end after it records what is written in 2 Samuel chapter 7, for instance, picking up in verse 29 and 30, I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. If his children forsake my love and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes, so on and so forth. Verse 33, I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. Exact replica of Second Samuel chapter 7. But then the psalmist goes on and says this. If you have a hard time believing God is going to be forever faithful, here's how he concludes. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the sun, it shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies. So the psalmist, another Christian author, tells us to do this. If you have a hard time believing that God is forever, forever, forever gonna be faithful, Don't just look into the scriptures. Don't just go off and pray. You know what you should do? You should take a look at the sun and the moon. Those are two visual reminders, two visual proofs declaring in all of creation that God is always gonna be faithful. The sun, the sun, what about the sun? If you believe God created everything, it's not random chance or accident, but we live in a personal, intelligent, purpose-filled, warm, intimate universe in which God can be our father, if you believe God created everything, it's not accidental, then the sunrise and the sunset is all because of him. Has there ever been a day in which the sun didn't shine? That's what the psalmist is saying. Oh, go into the night. Oh, I know you can't see the moon every time, but you know scientifically it is true. The moon is shining over the day the sun shines and then there is moonshine over the night. God, according to the psalmist, is saying, I will forever, forever, forever be faithful just as the sun shines every day and the moon shines every night. Now, there are some Christians who believe, oh, the world has only been in existence for about 6,000 years. Then other Christians believe, oh, the world has been in existence for millions of years. Then other Christians believe, now it's been billions and trillions of years. You know what, it really doesn't matter. Let's just take 6,000 years, the youngest age of the universe. And let me ask you this question. Do you remember when you first came to love Jesus because he loved you to the point of death? Do you remember when you first put your faith in Jesus and followed him? Remember what that was like? Remember when it was? Might not be a day, but a certain season. Let's try to remember. Remember? And then can I follow up that question? Have you been faithful to love God and follow him every day, every moment, just from the moment that you first started to believe in Jesus? Maybe for some of you, two or three years, you became a Christian. Others of you, maybe 20, 30 years. By the looks of it in this room, there's no way someone is saying it's been 60 years. And even in 50 or 60 years, none of us could say that we have been utterly faithful to God every day, every moment. But here's what God says. But I've been at least faithful to you every day, every moment for at least 6,000. So if you have a hard time believing God is always going to be faithful, take a look at the sun and the moon. But of course, take a really good look at Jesus. Because when Jesus was born, He is fulfilling all the promises to David and his sons to be a forever king so that God could be our forever father. And if God the father gave up his own son, follow me my friend, if God the father is willing to give up his own son, how will he ever give up on you? Religion tells you, you better give God your best. You better behave and give him your best or God will not love you and bless you. That's what religion says. Do you know what God, the Father of Jesus, comes and says? I'll give you my best. I'll give up my very best. Even when you're at your worst. Because I want to lavish my grace, my love, and my faithfulness to you. My friend, this morning, it simply just takes... I need the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Please come and pour that, out, pour that upon me. And I now want to love and follow you all my days. On this Father's Day, some of you, as I mentioned, there's so many different baggage. There's so much hurt or abandonment or deep, deep feelings of resentment. Please make no mistake You are right at the heart of why Jesus came. Jesus came to give you his father. Some of you are deeply distracted. You're like never content. Always restless and distracted. Part of the reason in this day and age, you're always comparing yourself with someone else. You're always thinking about, oh, if I had that house, oh, if I had that job, oh, if I could marry this person, oh, if I had that kind of lifestyle. Do you know, my friend, this morning, your Father in heaven never does that with you? He never compares and contrasts you with someone else. Some of you are very exhausted and uptight because you just keep riding on your faithfulness, your goodness to God, but God comes out and says, I want you to rest upon my goodness and faithfulness to you. Some of you have very, very good dads, and you feel all strong and secure. Some others like me feel in many ways so flawed, so failing, so frustrated, so weak. But in all of these these occasions, for every man, every woman, every child, the Father to Jesus has a place in his heart for you. Smallpox had swept into New England and into Princeton University in the winter of 1757 and 1758. A man by the name of Jonathan Edwards had become the first president of Princeton University and it's no surprise that he volunteered himself at that time to be inoculated for smallpox, hoping that they would discover a medical cure. Well, he got inoculated. He contracted the disease on the roof of his mouth and his throat. He eventually struggled to swallow even the liquids that are essential for recovery. And after a couple of weeks of extreme weakness and near starvation, he came down with a fever. And he died on March 22nd, 1758. But his final words that he had written to his daughter, Lucy, just the beginning and the end, it went like this. Dear Lucy, it seems to me to be the will of God that I must shortly leave you. And then a couple sentences he writes about his enormous supernatural love that he enjoyed with his wife. And then at the end, and as to my children, you are now left to be fatherless, which I hope will be an inducement to you all to seek a father who will never fail you. To seek a father who will never fail you. A good dad, it's hard to see him fall. It's hard to see a strong, godly dad get sick, lose his mind, lose his body. It's hard with awful, abandoned, abandoning, neglecting, indifferent, horrible dads to think about the experiences that you still carry to today. Jonathan Edwards is not just religious advice. This is not just a good parenting goal. Seek a father who will never fail you. Jesus came to bring you his father. And that relationship is prior to and more central to all other relations.